0: So the answer to that question takes me back to my undergrad days, um, and in fact, I will tell a story that may encourage some people, or may just make them say, see, "See, see, I knew it." But my first real New Testament essay about uh, you, know, you know my first real New Testament essay as an undergrad, moving into sort of university level studies was on the Gospel of John, and didn't get a very good grade on it. And I remember the professor saying, you, you dog paddled in a current that needed a strong swimmer. Uh, it was about the Johannine community. It was The question was about the Johannine community. And I came in from a fairly conservative, evangelical sort of background, and was assuming that, you know, well, if scholars are coming up with this stuff, then I should probably be poo-pooing it and, you know. and Person was unimpressed, uh, but it forced me to crank up you know, the notch and you know get my act together, and so that was a major you know point. It wasn't just because I'm one of the people who says, "Okay, challenge accepted," right? Give me a home, home,
1: Give me a Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Seth. Let's do this thing. Yes, I finally did it it, sometime before this aired. I don't know when I finally made that little beanie. And I'm going to tell you right now, it's really warm. Um, Quite a few of you have already picked one up. Uh, It is probably by the time this episode releases too late to get one of those for the holidays, but the winter is not over. It's fantastic. Go to the store, get you one. I like it. Snuggles my little bald dome. Anyway, I'm a little excited about it. I'm not going to lie. But here we go um so returning guest of the show dr james mcgrath is back on the podcast and uh, you're gonna hear a lot of inside jokes uh and cross talk a bit and a lot of that references our first conversation like episode 10 or 14 or something like that and so you don't necessarily need to listen to that one first but i would highly recommend it but do dive back into that listen to it a bit because some of the laughter at the beginning uh, you just won't really get if you don't have that context not necessary reading doesn't break the episode but a little editor's note there so here's what we talked about so we talked about the gospel of john and its importance in the bible we talked about ancient aliens Uh, we talked about how to read the bible a bit and we also talked about a a group of people called the indians and i really hope that i'm saying that correctly um, it is, a fa- I love this conversation. I think it's fascinating. And um, I really hope that you do as well. So here we go.
0: Oh, 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 the your Give it
1: all. Dr. James McGrath. Um, and I say that on purpose because back in the day when I was an idiot and I still am, I remember posting your episode but the picture on your the name on the picture that I posted of the episode of you on Facebook actually said Dr. James Butler because I misunderstood Butler. I don't know if you remember this or not, but yeah. I actually got yeah. I was like I, and you're not the only person I did that to. I kept screwing up because I was copying and pasting on my iPhone. So I no longer make those images on my iPhone. So thank you for your forgiveness that I didn't ask for and and welcome back to the show.
0: You are Hereby forgiven, uh, <laughs> not that you needed to be. And I think it's so great that we can do things that obviously allow us to mess stuff up mm-hmm. on our iPhones. But the sheer power of those things, like, was a dream you know, that we had, you know, especially if we were sci-fi geeks, mm-hmm. you know, just a couple of decades ago. And so, we're recording podcasts, disseminating things around the globe, editing images, making memes. On these tiny devices that are cooler than anything that was on Star Trek uh, back when I first started watching it. So, Ma-
1: making memes is my favorite thing to do. I really, yeah. really enjoy it. Although I've stopped making memes uh, because I've realized I can't take that back off of the internet. And I don't want my kids yeah. to be judged upon my poor judgment yeah. one of these days when they decide to run for office or something like that, you know, or, or shoot, you, maybe me.
0: You don't have to put your name on all your memes. So, uh,
1: yeah, but if I go through the effort of making it, I just want credit. You know, you just want to cut it. Although I'm certain that whatever words I put on there, they're not mine. That's not why you came on, though. Um, So what has been new? You were one of the first handful of... I forget what episode you were. I think 11, 12, 10, somewhere in there. Um, one of the first few on the show. Um, one of my favorites as well As I listened back through it and I transcribed it a few weeks ago. I really enjoyed that conversation. But what have you been up to since the last time that you were here?
0: Oh, uh, I'm trying to think when that was and exactly what...
1: Uh, it is that was doing. February of 2018.
0: Okay, so we've basically got uh, about a year and a half <laughs> worth of stuff happening. Yeah. And so have a number of things that I've been writing, um, a number of ongoing book projects. I can't remember which of them I even had on my radar at that stage. We, I remember we talked mostly about uh, theology and science fiction. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's uh, something I've continued to write about. Have some things forthcoming on Star Wars and Star Trek as they intersect with theology. And we'll be doing some things related to the Bible and science fiction, um, Black Mirror and theology and mm. things like that. I don't just do sci-fi, though, when it comes to pop culture. I have a book contract for a book that I'll be writing together with a colleague on, uh, Theology and Progressive Rock and so that's gonna be some fun yeah
1: what is progressive Uh, rock because i feel like that's a big name for a big thing
0: yeah uh so it's not to do with progressive politics or progressive theology or anything like that it's musically progressive and was a big genre particularly in the 70s uh and has continued down to the present day uh but if you think of bands like uh, genesis emerson lake and palmer kansas where there was some uh pushing the boundaries of what rock music could be, mm-hmm. uh, engaging with and drawing on uh, classical jazz, other things, transgressing boundaries between genres, things like that. And it's a, it's a genre that I've long loved and uh, have a colleague who is interested in, uh, loves the genre just as much and also is interested in the theological aspects and is coming from the music side, whereas I'm coming from the religion and theology side. And so we thought we'd do something together on that.
1: Huh. When is that out? Or when is, oh, it, when is it being we'd, written? we'd have
0: to write it first. So <laughs> yeah.
1: I thought that's <laughs> Not how for book a while. contracts worked. They give you money and then you have to write.
0: Well, this one was one where I already had some other things in the pipeline. And so was like, okay, this, we will put together a proposal so that we start working on it. We will submit it to a publisher to see if there's interest so that mm-hmm. we have encouragement to write it. And then we will give ourselves enough time as we, tie down the details Mm -hmm. to to be able to work on that. And then I am actually doing things on biblical studies, which is my old (laughs) hunting ground and (laughs) have not left it behind, even though I've not, uh, I started dabbling in other things and they've turned into not just side interests, but full fledged research and teaching areas in their own. Right. But have projects related to uh, John the Baptist and uh, Jesus and women that I'm working on. And one thing that is very, very near to release is uh, the Mandaean Book of John. Which how do you is, spell that? What what is that? So the Mandaeans are the essentially the last surviving Gnostic group from ancient times who made it down to the present day, and they have sacred texts in a dialect of Aramaic. They admire John the Baptist, not so big fans of Jesus. Hmm. They have sacred texts that mention John the Baptist and Jesus and other figures. Uh, Baptism in living water, that is flowing water, right in the Aramaic uh, idiom, is their central ritual. And they're just a fascinating group that used to get a lot of attention from uh, New Testament scholars when they thought that maybe these folks are the background to the Gospel of John and things like that. When it became clear that you can't just plug them in in that way, then there was a a downturn of interest. And yeah, some of their sacred texts had not been translated into English in their entirety, at least not in a translation that was direct from the available manuscripts in the original languages. And so we had a project to try and rectify that.
1: That sounds fascinating. And I say that because I literally hours ago wrapped a conversation on Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls and how the Essenes okay. and Qumran. Yeah. Uh, and it dealt a lot with the Gospel of John and John the Baptist. Yeah. And so those thoughts are still in my head. Matter of fact, I may just start asking you questions about that.
0: But That sounds good. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, I do want to talk. I do want to pick your theological brain because your voice specifically on social media, your blog, what I see you writing about— like the way that you talk about theology and empire and indigenous people and women and just really there doesn't seem to be a topic that you won't talk about um <laughs> which which I like cuz I'm the same yeah. way uh, and a lot of ancient archaeological contextual topics as it bubbles back into the bible yeah um harits i think is the name of one of the websites that you post often and i'm like i And you get paywalled if you don't turn on uh, incognito mode. Well, if you just turn off the cookies, they don't have to have a clue how many times you've been there. And hopefully they're not listening and I won't get paywalled a different way. But I wanted to clarify. So when you recently linked back to the transcript of our first conversation, and I wanted to give some context because I feel like you did so there. I had, I guess, cut something out, to be honest, I don't remember, of like Huvian Marcionites. And so for those that (laughs) haven't, Listen to the first episode. I'll link to it somewhere in the show notes, probably in the middle or the bot. They're not long show notes, so there's only so many links. Just click on one of those um, and go back and listen to that. It is a great conversation, but you, we had chatted back and forth. And you're like, we need to give some context to what this means, what I'm trying to say, <laughs> uh, because we had talked a bit before I hit record as podcasts podcaster want to do, which is why now I hit record from the moment that you're here. But <laughs> yeah. if I need to, I can back it back in. Um, so can you give context to kind of what was going on there, what you meant yeah. by it, why it matters?
0: Yeah. And actually, I'm still getting laughs. in the. It, it takes a particular context to get any laughs or to have people not just look at you puzzled. Mm-hmm. But in the right context, you get, you get chuckles from this, maybe outright laughter. Uh, so I was just guest speaking in a class at a seminary recently talking about science fiction and theology. And that's the sort of context in which people might get the joke there because you need to know Doctor Who Mm -hmm. and you need to know theology and the history of theology and debates about uh, uh, the canon and Christian scripture. Marcion was this famous figure in church history for listeners who may not be familiar with him, who uh, got himself sort of uh, chased out of uh, the church that he was involved in in Rome and various things because he basically took a view that's Surprisingly widespread, given that it's been viewed as heresy for so long in the, you know, what became Orthodox. You mean currently Christian widespread? Church. It's currently widespread, okay. yeah. Basically to say, you know, well, that's the Old Testament God, but, you know, we are the New Testament, you know. And to hear Christians say that you know, is, is very interesting, um, given that that was his view and he was, you know, declared a heretic. Yeah. Um, of course, who gets to decide who's a heretic is also one of those interesting things we could talk about. But Marcionism is basically the view that, you know, the Old Testament, you know, the Old Testament's God is something else, not, you know, not a Christian thing. And you get people who lean in that direction today, and you get people who seem to be, like, going even further than Marcion went in his time, uh, as well as a whole spectrum in between. But when I said Huvian Marcionism, you know, Huvian Marcionites, I basically meant people for whom the whole whole, uh, what we might call Old Testament of Doctor Who, right? So everything (laughs) before it got revived uh, with Christopher (laughs) Eccleston is we don't talk about that. We don't care. It's not, that's a whole, it's treated like it's a whole different franchise, a whole different thing. And so was making a joke about that, which obviously if you're not a Doctor Who fan and don't know the history, if you're not a church history geek or something like that, and both simultaneously, then this is not even going to make sense, much less seem an amusing way of talking about people who forget the classic series.
1: What's funny is, so I, when you, when you posted that blog post and I linked, but so my pastor had messaged me and he's like, so you're getting talked about on this thing. I was like, what? And then I read through it. I'm like, did I do it wrong? I was like, I listened back through. I'm like, that's verbatim what we said. And I didn't realize that I didn't really put any context in there. And then, so I, I posted it in. So I've got like a private discussion group, um, which anybody's welcome to as long as they answer some questions about don't be a jerk or I'll kick you out where people can talk about faith and religion and whatnot like it's it's literally about 200 people it's one of my favorite places on the internet because it's one of the most authentic places on the internet um at least that I'm aware of and uh, I posted it there and a lot of people are like I love Doctor Who and then they all started laughing as well they're like but a lot of people as as I'm sure you know they begin listening to something or begin watching something and then they don't really go backwards they just start yeah. from there and go forwards yep. so they also had no context and so all when right. they listen to it they're like what happened here? I was like, never mind, it doesn't matter. But good, yeah, yeah. I <laughs> knew the context, but that's because I was involved in the conversation. But yeah, let's dial into John. So John is your wheelhouse, right? Like if you go through like your Butler University little bio page, John is your wheelhouse. So why John?
0: So the answer to that question takes me back to my undergrad days, um, and in fact, I will tell a story that may encourage some people or may just make them see, 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 I knew it. But (laughs) my first real New Testament essay about, uh, you you know, my first real New Testament essay as an undergrad moving into sort of university level studies was on the Gospel of John and didn't get a very good grade on it. And hmm. I remember the professor saying, you, "You dog paddled in a current that needed a strong swimmer." Uh, it was about the <laughs> Johannine community. It was the question was about the Johannine community, and I came in from a fairly conservative evangelical sort of background and was assuming that, you know, well, if scholars are coming up with this stuff, then I should probably be poo pooing it, and you know. And the person was unimpressed, uh, but it forced me to crank up you know, the notch, and you know get my act together. And so that was a major you know, point. It wasn't just because I'm one of the people who says, okay, challenge accepted, right? But one of the things that I was coming into studies with, starting out in Bible college and then transitioning into you know, sort of, uh, a university degree, was the, the idea that these four gospels, if they're all in the New Testament, they should all basically say the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. And once you start studying John, no, John really is different, right? The language is different, the terminology, the events that are included, what's not there. You know, there's there's lots of stuff, the mm-hmm. structure, the kinds of, you know, there's a lot that makes John stand out. And so explaining that became important to me as an effort to both pursue something I thought was interesting academically, but also to make sense of this because it wasn't what I'd would been led to believe in a sort of church context. And as I looked into it more, as my studies progressed as an undergrad, I found myself encountering two main views, both of which I found unsatisfying. One was the uh, sort of syncretism type approach, which says that as Christianity becomes less and less Jewish, Jesus becomes more and more God. So Mm -hmm. his divinity increases as you get more and more polytheists coming in who don't have monotheistic sensibilities. And that didn't, Seem persuasive to me for a number of reasons. One is that when people convert to something, oftentimes they're more adamant than anyone else is. Yeah. You know that's one yeah. of the things. The true believers. So just <laughs> yeah. So just you know, sociologically, uh, that doesn't seem to fit. But also, works like the Gospel of John are, you know, profoundly, you know, uh, profoundly Jewish works, right? I mean, this is Jewish Christianity, or maybe just a, a, a version of Jewish messianism at this stage, depending on how you think it relates to the development of Christianity as a phenomenon that's becoming distinct from Judaism, but its roots in the synagogue among Jewish people who believe Jesus was the Messiah, seem clear in terms of what it focuses on, what it says, language that it uses, things like that. And so I was unpersuaded by that approach, you know, that Morris Casey and others have taken. But a lot of conservatives were simply saying, you just plant, the other Gospels, you water them for about half a century and out will sprout <laughs> the, the, the Christology that you find in the Gospel of John just by this sort of organic process. <laughs> and that didn't seem to work either because, I mean, Luke, Luke acts might be as late, you know, slightly earlier, slightly later, but it's not, you know, it's roughly the same time period most would date it to the Gospel of John. And yet it has, you know, a very human Jesus doesn't have this incarnational presentation doesn't have, you know, the son of man who came down from heaven and, you know, things like that. And so something has to explain the difference between these two, right? Why does John take things in that direction? And so that's what ended up becoming my doctoral dissertation was Mm -hmm. coming up with a model for how John could be so different and distinct and yet continuous because John is clearly elaborating things that are there earlier And is drawing new implications from them and is taking them in this new direction. And so there's continuity as well as creativity. And finding a way to make sense of the process that led to that distinctive portrait of Jesus Mm -hmm. was something that I just cared deeply about. Uh, I I wanted to make sense of this.
1: What is that way then? So if it's not syncretism and if it's not uh, a compost mulch and a massive tomato plant of Jesus, (laughs) for lack of a better metaphor, what do you argue that it is?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose it depends on the mulch and what's being added, and you know, maybe there's maybe there's a good metaphor there that I could work with, but I think it's <laughs> I think it really is a process of uh, what sociologists of knowledge call legitimation, uh, and I I actually use the word apologetic in my uh, my book title, my thesis title, because between apologetics and legitimation, there's very little difference, and most listeners. Uh, viewers of this podcast are probably more familiar with apologetics yep. where you're trying to defend your view. Uh, it's not apologetics in the sense of I'm really, really sorry that I hold these views, but you know, um comes from the Greek root of the word which has to do with defending your mm-hmm. views rather than apologizing for them. Mm-hmm. But in the process of making a defense of one's views, one also develops them right? One finds new proof texts, one makes new connections between ideas, and in the process of defense, there's also development. And that seems to me to provide a model for what's going on in the Gospel of John, because we, we see in the background of this text these arguments about who is Jesus. Some of those are very much rooted in the same kinds of issues that have already arisen in the Gospel of Mark, even. Uh, how can this person... Know, forgive sins, healing, working on the Sabbath. Who is this guy? Who does he think he is? Isn't this blasphemy? And the conflict about that seems to have continued. And some of the answers, you know, well, here's how you know: perform a healing, and yeah, you know, we're good to go and carry on. That is no longer satisfactory, right? The um, there's been some back and forth, and so John needs to find more persuasive answers. Yeah, both. To try to persuade others to believe, but even to reinforce the beliefs that he and the group that he's writing for already hold. And so, in that process, I think you know we see these developments happening. And so, you already have Matthew, for instance, using the language of you know the son, the pre-existent Son of Man, you know language that we find in First Enoch, you know in the Parables of Enoch and places like that. But in Matthew, we don't have you know Jesus. You know, as the Son of Man who comes down from heaven, that kind of language. And so, is this preexistence in the mind of God? Is it how literal is this? What kind of preexistence? You know, none of that is fleshed out. Yeah. Um, if you'll, if yeah. you don't mind the Johannine pun there, uh, whereas John does go that direction because we get to, we get a sense of the objections that are being raised. Right. We know God spoke to Moses. This man, we don't know where he came from. Comes from. Right. And John's like, well, let me tell you. And he draws on that and takes some of the, that language more literally and says, well, how could that be? What would that mean? And therefore, Jesus becomes one who can reveal things that no one else, not even Moses, could. Yeah. And so I think it's that back and forth that's driving this development that explains how you still have, it's still the Son of Man. It's still linked to the things we find in the other Gospels and Paul, but John is doing these distinctive things with it.
1: You said something earlier that when you went into undergrad or maybe with grad, one of the, one of the grads that you came from a conservative background, do you feel like that's an inherent, I want to be very careful not to pigeonhole people because a lot of people are perfectly comfortable where they're at. And I don't want to make their boat hit turbulence for lack, for just for reasons. There's no reason to do that. It doesn't serve any purpose. Um, but do you feel like that viewpoint of the Bible, gives someone an inherent disadvantage when they begin actually studying the Bible, as opposed to reading the Bible.
0: Mm, and that's an interesting distinction you're making there, right? Yep. Studying as opposed to I only reading. wrote down one question
1: yep. for today. Yeah, this is the one I wanted to make sure I worded it correctly.
0: And so I was, I'm glad. I'm glad that the conversation has led so naturally to that. What I've often said,
1: yeah,
0: yeah, uh, when when I've found myself teaching at Butler University, which is not religiously affiliated, and yet lots of students who've taken courses on the Bible are not only coming from a religious background, but the Bible is important to them for their faith. And yet there are also students for whom this is a subject of curiosity. They haven't read the Bible at all before. Hmm. They know other people do, and they want to learn about it. Figuring out how to meet both of those audiences' needs is a, a challenge. But one question that students often have is, you know, particularly the ones who haven't read it before, is, is this a disadvantage? And what I say is that there are advantages and disadvantages for all those students and what they're bringing. Right? The amount of interest, uh, the dedication to reading, can can provide so much. Right? Um, there's there's an enthusiasm. There's a, a a quest for you know engaging with the text and looking at the details and paying attention. On the other hand there are certain things that you're not supposed to see in the text and so you don't or you find ways of if they do jump out at you and you can't keep yourself from noticing them you find ways of crafting a narrative around the text that will harmonize those details so that you, you can say what do you mean
1: not supposed s-. to see
0: so for instance the idea that there could be you know two different authors human authors with two different voices that are saying two different things mm, okay. in the text right uh, is one of the examples, right? Uh, the pieces, the details are supposed to fit together, right? And when they seem not to, it can be very troubling if you're coming from a certain set of assumptions. If you're not coming from those assumptions, then it can be, yeah, well, that's just the way it is. And mm-hmm. wow, that's really interesting. It's interesting that this person does this and this person does that. And so I think that, I think that there are things that particular church contexts of any sort, as well as having no background of any sort that leads you to approach the text with a a sensitivity to and a receptivity to what its authors think is important. All of those things provide some potential for making insightful observations, as well as some things that may not jump out at you as readily because of what you're bringing to the text.
1: referenced earlier First Enoch and I just finished again reading this book on the Dead Sea Scrolls which talked a lot about the Essenes and they reference Enoch a lot they yeah. reference Ezekiel a lot and certain passages in Isaiah a lot as their reason for being out there and you know there's a lot there and for those that want to listen to that episode I don't know which one it was It it's you'll know if you've yeah. listened, but there's a lot there. And so the, the the gentleman that wrote that book effectively says that John the Baptist was probably educated by those in Qumran, which is why there's so much baptism and this, that, and the other stuff. And he draws a lot of correlations. And then talking about inconsistencies, talks about like, you know, the two different liturgical calendars between like a lunar cycle and a solar cycle, which is why John gives context to, you know, all the time frame that you need between Passover and crucifixion and all that stuff. I'm curious... And this may be something that you haven't researched. I don't know some of your thoughts on that because you alluded to John the Baptist a minute yeah. ago, and uh, I'm going to say I, I memorized it with a I don't know what it's called. I, I heard Zendaya, which I know is a musician, and you said Mandaya. <laughs> I think I think is what you yeah. said. So yeah. that's how I memorized it. I don't know how to spell it, but that's I yeah. memorized it. So
0: that's actually pretty good. You know, and I don't know what that often... thing's
1: called, uh, where yeah. you where you correlate two things that sound similar. Uh, homonym? Is that what it's called? Homophone? Something like that. Doesn't matter
0: doesn't matter yeah yeah so i and i'd be curious whether the other the the other interview and i'll i'm looking forward to listening to it but what, whether there's a uh exploration of possible connections with ezekiel since you mentioned ezekiel mm-hmm. there. uh but yeah the way i got to the the Mandaians, and most people in in english say Mandians just because it looks like that's one way to pronounce it. Uh, I've been trying to make a concerted effort just because this is actually a a living religious community. Really? and Today? Yeah, today. So you can go on YouTube and see what their baptism is like, right? And that's something in and of itself that makes this a fascinating group, right? Hmm. We read about baptism and sealing and other kinds of rituals at Nag Hammadi, for instance. Mm -hmm. Uh, We read about some of the rituals at Qumran, right? And the Uh, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and we say, we wish we could see what they do, right? Now, sometimes there's a difference between, you know, what was true in ancient times and the way people practice things now. You can't just look at a modern day practice and assume that it's always been like that, obviously. But having a living tradition that's connected with sacred texts gives you something to work with that we really feel painfully the lack of if we don't have it. And so the fact that you can read these texts from this Gnostic tradition and see what they do as a living tradition, not just by traveling to Iraq or Iran and looking at them as you used to have to, but uh, going on YouTube and looking at a video, right? There's plenty of them on there. It's It, it provides fascinating insight. And it, it raises, I think, some interesting questions about John's practice, John the Baptist's practice, because most of our approach to him is shaped by what Christians did with baptism and what Christians did with John the Baptist as well. And so bringing the Mandaeans into the picture, even though their sources are from somewhat later, just to add something, to triangulate on the historical John, that's my my next big John the Baptist project, uh, which I've started working on, but it's going to be a longer-term project.
1: Yeah. Well, can you break further into that? Like, so how? Yeah. So, what do they do differently with baptism? Yeah. Um. For those that want to YouTube it, how do I spell Mandians? Yeah. And yeah. and I'm asking that for myself. Yeah. Um. And like. Yeah. And he did reference Ezekiel. Yeah. The guy actually referenced that. Uh. The 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 the, the scenes would have wanted. They would have been looking for two different priests. One of uh. Two of, different uh, messiahs. Yeah yeah. Of, uh, yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. I said yeah. it wrong. Yeah. yeah. And so John is one. Jesus is the other. It was fascinating. And the whole book is actually, fa- I've read it a couple times and I'm still not quite certain that I'm there, but there's so much, uh, and he goes into even Pauline stuff where they talks about, you know, this is in Ephesians. It's almost verbatim in this one Damascus document or whatever. This is in Corinthians. This is in Galatians. These all correlate back to John and they're all right here. So what does that mean? I don't know, but we should talk about it. So it really is fascinating. Um, so the Mendians, who are they? What are they doing different? Are they related at all to you know the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, anyone else, or are they entirely separate, like fourth sect? Like, what is that?
0: Yeah. So th- th- there's a lot there to talk about. Let me yeah. uh, start by you know, where pick up where I connected with them. Right. So they were they, they're a group that if you work on the Gospel of John as a research area, you'll hear about them. And the reason I alluded to briefly earlier is because. Middle, yeah early to middle 20th century, a lot of New Testament scholarship thought these are the background to the G- Gospel of John in particular, right? Uh, they're Gnostic. Maybe these are the f- descendants of the followers of John the Baptist. Mm-hmm. And Gospel of John seems to be arguing against followers of John the Baptist. And so maybe this is the, the reverse image that will help us make sense of the Gospel of John mm-hmm. and, and why it's different and other things like that. Their texts are late enough that that's problematic. It's like trying to get at the historical Jesus with the Nag Hammadi texts, mm-hmm. right? It, you know, at least a few centuries later. And our oldest manuscripts are, you know, much much later than that. And some of these texts have been at least edited and redacted and interpolated uh, post-Islam and things like that. Uh, on the other hand, we have texts that are comparably late. You know, think about the the Babylonian Talmud, for instance, where same time period, perhaps. But we've encountered things in there that are also referred to in the New Testament, other sources that it's like, clearly there are some traditions that have made their way orally or in written form or somehow to find their way into these texts. And so I think that if they're used critically, they can be used uh, by New Testament scholars in important ways. But what happened was there was a pendulum swing away from paying any attention to them at all, because uh, some people... Uh, Most notably, C.H. Dodd wrote a book about the Gospel of John and the background to it, in which he said, well, maybe they just adopted John the Baptist to fly under the radar of the uh, the Islamic authorities to say they were people of the book, things like that. Hmm. And that just doesn't fit the evidence. And so I think we need to let the pendulum come back to a middle ground. But as for who they are, right, they are a Gnostic group, much like we find in the Coptic Gnostic sources. So... They are distinct in that they mention Jesus and yet don't view him favorably, right? We have texts that are Gnostic that don't mention Jesus from elsewhere, and we have texts that are Gnostic that we call Gnostic. That's The term is debated, but I'm going to keep using it because it's familiar and because it's, um, I think it still fits, at least in this case. But then there are some which are Gnostic Christian sources. But this is one that's Gnostic baptizing group that likes John the Baptist, doesn't like Jesus, thinks Jesus was a would-be disciple of John's, hmm. Was baptized by him, but was bad news and went off the rails and things like that. And so you can see why people would think maybe these were the followers of John who didn't become Christians, right? I mean, there's a certain plausibility to it. Mm-hmm. And I think they may well have a, at least a connection to that, right? Which is not the same thing as saying that you can just read these texts as though these were you know bef- written before the Gospel of John and are the background to it. So what do they do differently? Baptism for them is a repeated ritual. So it's not something you do once as a conversion. It is something that you do regularly, seeking forgiveness, seeking to connect with the light world and to prepare for your journey into the afterlife, into the uh, the realm above, uh, to find your way past uh, powers and you know, malevolent forces that might be there, uh, find your way through purgatories that people, you know, souls find themselves in when they have not atoned for their sins, when they are, have not lived righteously, and trying to prepare to find your way to uh, your ultimate destination, as it were.
1: Hmm.
0: And so I think there are a number of things that are relevant to, the, uh, to the, the work of John the Baptist there. So for instance, if John was baptizing for the forgiveness of sins, what did that mean, right? And for for Christians for whom the death of Jesus is for the forgiveness of sins, then what does that mean for John's baptism? Yeah. And so how does it relate is one of the questions that Christians uh, you know, wrestled with. But if it's a baptism for the forgiveness of sins in the sense that it's essentially an alternative to sacrifice, then it makes sense for it to be something that's repeated. And so I think that that aspect of the Mandayan practice, that's M-A-N-D-A-E-A-N, uh, just so you can find it do do look them up on YouTube. I mean I they're will. fascinating. Uh, you'll probably also find uh, some you know some lectures and guest talks and other things that I and others have have given if you start googling them on there too. so uh, but I think that that aspect of their ritual might actually be closer to what John did. At least it's worth asking the question and unless we bring groups like that into the picture, we might not even think to ask the question because the alternatives are, Purity immersions, which is not the same thing as forgiveness of sins, and being baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of sins in the Christian sense.
1: You said Coptic um, is that the same? So there's still like an Ethiopian Coptic church. Are they related at all to that, or no?
0: So Coptic is actually the uh, the version of the Egyptian language that was spoken uh, mm. around yes you know, sort our of New Testament times and into later times. So you'll still hear about the Copts in Egypt, right? Egyptian Christians. Um, Ethiopic is uh, the language that the, you know, texts like First Enoch are mm-hmm. preserved in, in their entirety, because the work became part of their canon, right? In Ethiopia. yeah. Uh, and so you have a couple of related traditions there, uh, all of which are very interesting. Uh, but the Coptic Gnostic sources, I'm referring to, their texts texts that are sometimes called the Gnostic Gospels, which were found at a place called Nag Hammadi mm-hmm. in Egypt, and were uh, most of them are thought to have been translated from other languages rather than composed in Coptic, uh, Greek, and in some cases Syriac. Uh, but that's those are the texts that I'm referring to, yeah. and we see some interesting points of intersection and overlap with the Mandaean sources
1: with those other Gospels like Enoch and whatnot. So they they seem to get quoted quite often in Scripture, and or at least the there's like s- small sections of other people quoting them in the New Testament. And so um, this is a question that I've wanted to ask you because I see you talk about a lot of different things. And at one point in time over the last years, um, you've said something about this. So what do we do with those texts that exist outside of the 66 inside Protestantism? What, what value can they hold? What Should they be preached on Sunday? And if so, with any disclaimers, like in a Baptist church or in the, pick a, pick a denomination, the denomination is irrelevant. Because they seem to hold weight and authority and inspiration for um, for a long time until they didn't uh, which really makes me wonder what happens if there's a new archaeological find next week and it changes scripture I'm like okay so what's the Bible that my kids have is should it even still be bound in one specific binding I think it should because it's easier but I hope my question makes sense
0: yeah yeah it's actually uh it's actually a question that I have long used as a classroom thought experiment mm-hmm. when getting students to talk about the canon. So if a an authentic letter of Paul's is found tomorrow, not will it, but should it become part of the Bible? Right? Should it be added? And why or why not? And that discussion often gets at some of the key facets that went into making the canon in the first place, the canons that we have. Because when you talk about first Enoch or book of Jubilees that are in the Ethiopic Canon, right? Those are pre-Christian works, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Texts that are from outside of the uh, New Testament and before that, and some of which were clearly known to early Christians. We get allusions to first Enoch in the gospels, but more importantly, we get an actual quote from there in the letter of Jude, uh, which may explain why nobody ever reads the letter or the postcard (laughs) of Jude, right? This tiny little thing, right? Uh, but clearly it was a text that the New Testament authors were reading, some of them were reading, but it's not included in most Bibles today, but is included in some, and so for that very reason, like why do some Christians have texts that others don't, uh, are important to ask. Uh, Neither of those is uh, gospel, right, so the things that were found in Nag Hammadi, I think we can safely say are later than the New Testament, and Influenced by it. There are works from outside the New Testament that might be so early that they could be independent or at least incorporate independent traditions. Uh, the Gospel of Thomas is often mentioned as mm-hmm. one where that's considered a possibility. Uh, the Gospel of Peter, I think, is another interesting one uh, just because of the ending. Uh, we're missing the ending, as we are in the case of Mark, I would guess. Uh, that's my view, in case you're wondering. Uh, but Yeah, we're missing the beginning and the end of the Gospel of Peter, but what we have before it breaks off, before the manuscript crumbles, pages crumbled or whatever happened to them, we get things pointing in a direction that might actually help us to figure out some things that are puzzling about the New Testament, right? I mean, how would that story continue after the women said nothing to anyone because they were afraid or things Mm -hmm. like that? And so I think that there are important things that one can learn by reading those texts.
1: Four-year-old. Yes, ma'am. Hey, if you're gonna be here, come say hello at least. Come here. Hi. I don't know if you can see her or not. Come here. If you're gonna if you're gonna I see the top of the head. If you're gonna interrupt, you have to say hey. Here, here you go. Now you can hear him.
0: Now hey, come. have you ever have you ever been on a podcast before? No? This is it your first time. I hope that your dad includes this because this is probably the best part of this podcast episode.
1: Oh, that's awful. That's that's hateful. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You can't stand on the couch. It's not possible. You're going to get hurt. (laughs) Sorry.
0: (laughs) Well, no, there were her bits are the best bits. Then there's your bits, and then there's my bits, right? So, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Well,
1: she's probably, as a child, she's probably the most most Christ-like of all of us. So why not? <laughs> she, yeah. She's walking up the stairs. Yeah, I, was on, I, I was on daddy's show. <laughs> she's yeah, bragging to the other kids.
0: <laughs> as she should, as she should. You don't invite just anyone on here, right? No, I well, she take it herself. as an honor, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, may, I may try that and see if it works on some future occasion. Just like suddenly like try to pop in and see what happens. Yeah, do it. Uh, but yeah, I think, um, so, if, if a text is discovered, right, let's say a, a letter of Paul's, you know, mm. when I get students to talk about that, here are the things that usually come up. One is, you know, what is it, right? So if Paul went off the rails and he lost his faith like in his final years and that's what that letter is about, probably shouldn't become part of Christian scripture, <laughs> even if it's an authentic letter of Paul's. If it's, yeah, you know, dear Timothy, you know, when you come to see me, please Bring a gallon of milk, two dozen eggs, and a bag of flour. Yeah,
1: I'm, uh, I'm making, pa- yeah.
0: I'm making pancakes <laughs> when you get here. Yeah, <laughs> that probably should not be part of scripture. Uh, although it will be less controversial, probably than the um, than the previous one. Yeah, right? yeah. If it's you know, if even if it's something that helps us make sense of what's already there, most people are not going to add it simply because it wasn't part of the Bible historically, and for them, that's going to be what matters. Mm. Right. And so I think the very act of discussing this, what people hopefully realize is that, you know, sorry for those for whom, you know, sola scriptura is the slogan, but the church defined what's in the Bible, right? Through consensus building, it wasn't just the Da Vinci Code scenario where Constantine comes in and says, you got to make Gospels, pick your four favorites, make sure they make Jesus look really good or Mm -hmm. something like that, Mm -hmm. right? It's not that, but it's the church debating, arguing, disagreeing about the fringes while converging on some things that the people who are having the conversation actually have all been reading or most of them have been reading for a really long time. Yeah, And most of that process happens naturally. And yeah. then they debate some things at the edges, but they have to fashion out an agreement. And in some instances, it took a really long time for some to get on board with some of the texts that were at the margins of the canon. Such as, I mean, the book of Revelation in Eastern churches, you know, is one example. Yeah. And so just thinking about that, I think, forces, you know, Protestants to actually think about something that Martin Luther, you know, as a reformer, clearly thought long and hard about. He realized that he has to address the question of what is canonical, what are the status of these works, that you can't just take that for granted because he's still living at a time when printed Bibles, you know, between two covers. Yeah, this is, this is a new thing and it's not a given in the way that it is for most people now. What is the Bible? What's available in your Christian bookstore or what's on your app? Let me,
1: um, let me shut the door. They're still being really loud. I'll be right back. Let me shut, let me shut the door.
0: And so I'm going to keep talking. I wonder whether Seth will even notice this. What did you say? I said I'm gonna keep talking. I wonder whether Seth will even notice this. So and I, I wasn't it, sure how much time I had, so I would have probably um, ad libbed something. So
1: there's a friend of mine that runs a separate podcast, and he he had to step away. I think UPS started banging on the door or something. Okay, and whoever the guest was, he's like, "So here's what's actually happening right now. Let me tell you a little bit about Eric and his life." <laughs> And his, like he just kept going. Yeah. And he cut it out, but then he put it on Facebook. He's like, so here's the mischievery that happens when you, st- yeah. when you step away from yeah. the microphone. Thanks for your flexibility there. Not at all. Yeah. No, so it was in reading that book on the Dead Sea Scrolls, the guy had said, he's like, you know, there's like five or six or whatever. There's like more copies of the book of Enoch in full than a lot of other texts that we have that were found there. He's like, so obviously it was important or you wouldn't have that many copies, A, Mm -hmm. it's unlikely that those copies accidentally had more preservation. It's just they had more copies of them, so they had some things there. I want to wrap up with this. And so you piqued my interest at the very beginning, and I don't want to let you go without another science fiction question because there are a few that share my affinity for science fiction. You had said something about Ezekiel and interpretation of that and ancient Uh aliens, which I know is a show on History Channel, and I don't have cable, so I've watched it very rarely. What were you talking about? And for context of those, if you're not a patron supporter, you won't really hear that because it was before we started. But the rest of you 50 or so people, you'll hear that. What were you talking about? Like That doesn't even make sense to me.
0: Right. So one of the things you talk about if you do things not just about the Bible and about science fiction, but as I've come to about the Bible and science fiction, is you discover that this whole ancient aliens thing actually gets started to a large extent by somebody who is interpreting the Bible in a very um, distinctive sort of way. Hmm. Uh, That individual is Eric von Däniken and he wrote a famous book, Chariots of the Gods, as well as a number of sequels. Um, You can probably find copies of this in your local Goodwill store. I mean, printed so many, you know, that it's, you know, Hmm. you can get hold of a copy. You can probably also find it, you know, in, in your local library and other places, uh, I'm not recommending it as reading. I should probably clarify.
1: <laughs> you can find it, but don't read
0: it. You could well, <laughs> by all means, read it. Uh, read it critically. Um, read it. Uh, I'm saying don't embrace its message because mm-hmm. I think its its approach to the Bible is problematic. But he says that he read the Bible; it never made sense to him until suddenly he started taking it seriously as descriptions of what these people actually saw, but substituted aliens for God. Hmm. Right. So Ezekiel sees this strange object with moving parts in the sky and sees figures that don't look human, but are humanoid, and what is this, right? And he his whole approach to ancient aliens really emerges out of that. Huh. And you actually get this coming up in places in pop culture, uh, maybe not with his name mentioned, but if you've ever seen, and I, Fully understand why you might not have, but if you've ever seen the movie *Knowing* with Nicolas Cage, um, it features uh, yeah, well. It features aliens. It features sort of end of the world scenario. But there is a prominent display of some artwork that is an attempt to depict what Ezekiel saw in Ezekiel chapter one.
1: Hmm.
0: And I mean, for, I should add from the perspective of biblical scholars and ancient Judaism, this is a mystical text right this is important text in jewish mysticism uh, they warned against reading it on your own and i think eric von däniken shows that that caution was needed <laughs> absolutely but what ezekiel is seeing is essentially you know as one of my students put it once god on wheels right this is the heavenly equivalent of the ark of the covenant right the divine throne but it's a chariot right but it's a heavenly chariot that can move In any direction, right? It's wheels within wheels. It can move in any direction. It can be anywhere. It can be with Ezekiel and the exiles in Babylonia. It's not limited to the temple in Jerusalem. And it's a response to the question of what, you know, what's, what happens to our one God in relation to exile, apparent defeat by other powers who represent other gods, these kinds of things. It's a powerful and meaningful text when you get that symbolism, Mark of the Covenant symbolism, other things. Uh, of course then you see Indiana Jones and you're like well that could be aliens too right so you know it's whatever
1: <laughs> it's all aliens
0: but but if you read that text and you don't have that context then sure i mean unidentified flying object seems like a you know not a bad description i mean it is it is a strange thing and ezekiel is puzzling over it but i think the imagery is clearer if you have more uh, more biblical background
1: that's good. I, I'll, I'll, i probably won't read that book cause I have so <laughs> many other books to read, but I will find that movie because Nicolas Cage movies are 50, 50. You're either really entertained. Yeah. That doesn't mean the movie's good, Yeah, but you're really yeah. entertained. Or you're like, that's two hours that I will never get back. I'm <laughs> closer to death. Yeah. And <laughs> so, um, yeah. yeah. So plug the places, James. So you do your own podcast. You write prolifically on your blog. Um, and I th- and you got the new book coming out, or it sounds like multiple books. So where would you direct people to for for your things? Like where are all the places?
0: Okay, so if you Google religion prof, you'll find most of my online presence. My uh, blog used to be exploring our matrix, and then I realized that uh, my students were not getting my matrix references anymore, and so it was about time.
1: You mean the movie The be- Matrix?
0: Yeah. Okay. So, uh, but it was a pun, right? Exploring our matrix, you know, our context, but also our matrix, the movie and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, I, I, I've been blogging for so long. I probably could have been like the Bible guy blog or something, you know, (laughs) like I could have snatched up like some prime real estate in the blogosphere, but, uh, didn't do it, but it's probably just as well. And one reason for that is that I was actually exploring side interests. What were at that time side interests, sci-fi and things like that. So I was religion prof on Twitter for a long time. And so when I renamed my blog, it became religion prof as well. And now my podcast is also religion prof. And mm-hmm. so that's a good way to find me on, online, on Facebook, on Twitter, Instagram, even anyplace else. There's a book, a two-volume critical edition translation commentary on the Mandayan Book of John, uh, which is coming out from Gruyter very soon. And so uh, look that up. And I don't expect anyone to order it at you know for their own personal copy, you know, unless they actually work in this field as academics and are among those very wealthy academics. But get your library to get a copy, right? Mm-hmm. So recommend it to your library, public library, university library, uh, because I think this is an important text for libraries to have to make accessible to others. There will be an open access component to this because one thing that didn't come up in our conversation is that the Mandaians are as a living community historically located in the border regions where Iraq and Iran meet, not always a hospitable context for them for a variety of reasons. And so they're now uh, underrepresented dwindling numbers in their historic homeland spread to lots of other countries where you might actually meet some of them see some of them see you know find out if you know people should google them and see if they are located in their local area and support this community because a lot of them are refugees Mm. from their historic homeland but a lot of them are struggling to know how to pass on their heritage to another generation of people who don't speak their language don't you know may not find the religion as familiar things like that and so we've both, uh, we've been concerned both to engage in his uh, cultural preservation uh, in service of those communities that kindly allowed us to work with their texts, uh, but also to reach people who might say, the Mendians, didn't they do that in the 20th century? Isn't that, you know, is that worth another look? And so we're gonna have an open access component that hopefully will get people uh, lured in. So look for that coming very soon. Yeah. And then connect with me on social media if there's anything that I've mentioned that you wanna talk more about. (laughs)
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I, well, I, I still will do that. Um, yeah, I, I look about three times a week. I'm like, what did James post today? Uh, cause it's, <laughs> it's, it's all over the place. It's, it's archeological or it's this, I mean, today's on you know Columbus day, which I'm not going to talk about cause this won't air on Columbus day and Columbus day continually just makes me more and more angry as I get older and I learn more and more context. I'm like, golly I really missed the boat. But anyway, that's beside the point. Thank you again so much for coming on. I appreciate you so much.
0: Thanks so much for having me on. And uh, if you actually do give up some time from your life, mm-hmm. you know your short lifespan to watch that Nicolas Cage movie, <laughs> next time we talk, uh, let me know what you think of it.
1: If it's on Netflix, I'll watch it today. I mean, I'm off work, so <laughs> why not? Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Keep circling back to that metaphor because i find it a really good way to talk about faith often we learn new things and we're not ready for it and we are dog paddling in a river or a stream or a lake or an ocean that really requires a strong swimmer and i really like that metaphor because we've all been in over our heads shoot almost every single time that i do an episode or open our new book or really try to learn some new ideas, I'm always in over my head. And it's both scary, but I think it's also both necessary. A special thanks to Laura Thompson for the use of her music in this episode. Folks, remember to um, go to the Spotify playlist for Can I Say This at Church. Click the button to play. I mean, the artists make a little bit of money every time you do that. And um, definitely check out her stuff. She's got some great stuff happening there. But there are so many other artists from every single episode that's come out. So... I can't wait to talk to you next week. Be blessed.